The apostles were brought before the council where the high priest confronted them. In no uncertain terms, we demanded that you not teach in this name. And look at you. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to hold us responsible for this man's death. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than the humans. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God has exalted Jesus to his right side as leader and savior so that he could enable Israel to change its heart and life and to find forgiveness for your sins. We are witness as such things as in the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of, the God, of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, AJ, for reading. Thank you, worship team, for those uh, two, am I right? There's kind of two reworkings of traditional songs in that. In no uncertain terms, we demanded that you not continue doing what you're doing. I've heard that before. We are in a preaching season that begins this week and continues for several more. And it's coming from the book of Acts. I recognize that it's pretty traditional to start telling stories about the church from Pentecost on. So we start in uh, Pentecost is June 9th this year. And then traditionally, you know, we start celebrating the birthday of the church. We have cake, and we start talking about church stuff, and we go, oh, boy, it's just so great to tell stories about the church. And I recognize that it is the season of Easter still, and it will remain for quite some time. You know, we were in Lent for six weeks, and we had Easter last week, but it continues. And, in fact, if you're a part of the um, Orthodox tradition, today's Orthodox Easter. Um, so, you know, it's still Easter worldwide, and we're in this season. And like I said this morning, the, one of the things that is true for us is, you know, not just seeing Jesus as the one and only resurrection, but seeing resurrections in us, seeing things come to life, seeing this story be made alive. So in that spirit, I think it is, is quite fair to start talking about the church. The, the lectionary texts, which are the, the texts that are assigned to preachers throughout the year, give us six weeks in the book of Acts right after Easter. And so that's where we're going to be for the next couple of weeks. And as a preacher, I found that kind of interesting because the text that it has assigned to us are some interesting insights into what it means to be the church. And that is, in fact, the name of the preaching season that we're in right now, to be the church. I think... More often than not, we think of the church as this, as this you know, physical entity, this building, but that's just simply not biblical. You are the church. You are the people that make up the church, the very hands and feet. So we're going to be kind of working our way backwards for the next couple of weeks, working up to the birth of the church, by which at that point, hopefully, we've had some renewed thoughts and ideas around what does it mean for us to be the church? 
This, however, presents something of a problem. I do not like the book of Acts. Do you? I went through my notes. In 10 years of preaching, I've done two sermons from the book of Acts. This is number three. I would much prefer to choose Jesus. Much more inclusive. I align with Jesus. I love the spirit of inclusivity of Jesus. I love the wisdom teachings of Jesus. I love the uh, sort of wild, rogue nature of Jesus. A bunch of men encountering power as they establish a new organization. Not, I don't love that. Isn't this perhaps a bit more true than we may realize? That it's often really easy for us to, in our very faith, our identity as religious people, to identify mostly with Jesus. And yet there is a tension in that Jesus asks for the exact opposite. To not cling on to him, but to go be the church. So I'm encountering a bit of a tension that I think some of us, even if we don't want to name it, do feel ourselves. That when it comes to what it means when we say, oh, I'm a Christian, you know, that elevator pitch conversation you have with someone, oh, you go to United Methodist Church, what does that mean? Like, does that mean you, do all, you, you think all these oppressive things? Or does that mean you know, women can't be in ministry? Does that mean you're going to try to pray the devil out of me? And you quickly say something like, oh, well, you know, like, that's, I, I believe in, I kind of align with Jesus, you know, and I, I'm part of a different, you know, different kind of expression of the church. So, what then does it mean for you to be the church? It's precisely a question that Jesus asks of us often in the Gospels. In fact, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of the Acts, which are supposed to be an Acts of the Apostles, testifying, living into the very Gospel of Jesus, are supposed to go hand in hand. Is that true for us? That we have taken on the name, oh, what a bold decision, Christian. We have decided to call ourselves Christians. But are we yet ready to be the church? That is, I think, the struggle you see in and out of the Acts of the Apostles, filled with highs and lows, trying to struggle through the ins and outs of being a part of an institution, coming face-to-face with tradition and power and persecution and exhaustion and hope. Those Those are all pretty consistent things those of you who have been a part of a church. So here's a, a quick recap of what has happened. We were here on Easter Sunday. That was just a week ago. We saw Jesus resurrected, and it was a great, grand old party. And up to right now, where we're preaching, a lot has actually happened. Jesus was resurrected, cooked some fish for people on the side of the shore, which we're not going to take a quick time out. We're not going to get to cover this text because of the way the lectionary leads. But this is one of my favorite stories of the Jesus cooking fish on the beach. Because when people say that, like, 
resurrection stories are just like foolish myths. Uh, I think the image of Jesus like being resurrected and then deciding to like have a barbecue on the beach is some amazing stuff that like makes me believe that he in fact was crazy enough during his whole life for people to be like, I don't know what to do with this guy. And I love that after he's resurrected, he's still like, barbecue, anyone? We're just cooking? Anyway, so, sorry. I told myself I wasn't going to do that. Um, So Jesus had a barbecue on the beach, ascended into heaven, commissioned people to be the church, and they started to do it. Except it was really difficult. People started dying. People started remembering the very things that Jesus told them. That if you want to be my follower, you're going to have to pick up your cross. And that's not just some sort of like subjective cross. Like, well, my cross is, no, 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 no. It is the death. It's the very thing you saw your, your, your beloved brother and Christ figure die on. And now people are struggling and they're being persecuted. The book of Acts comes some 50 to 75 years after the time of Jesus. There is both this simultaneous wild growth of a church and then a decline as you also see the reality of people dying, people being persecuted. Because as the church continues to grow, gain support, the oppression and the power of Rome continues to drive itself in. What do you do when you can no longer just be a follower of Jesus? And the church that you need to be a part of, to feel alive, has not yet been created. What do you do when it's no longer a question for you to just be a casual, comfortable, sit-in-my-pew follower of Jesus? And the church that you need for hope, for survival, to fulfill the mission has not yet been created. And something is being asked of you. And yet you come face to face over and over and over again with inescapable religious traditions and insufferable amounts of political power. I think we might have more in common with this story than we thought. I'm curious in hearing from you. You know, we, for goodness, a couple of months, talked about the, the anxieties in the United Methodist Church. Oh, no, I really hope that they don't vote the way that I think they're going to vote. If they do, things are going to change. It's going to be wild. It's going to be crazy. And then they voted the way that they did. I don't know if anything's changed. I think we have felt an impact and not yet seen a change. 
you know, I, <laughs> I think one of my fears in the, in the process of being a pastor alongside a congregation in this season, and as I've journeyed alongside my colleagues over the last couple months through this, one of my fears has been that this would happen, that the, the denomination, which is the, 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 the grand old United Methodist Church, would vote to tighten its policies to become more oppressive and to keep many people on the margins. And we would go, ah, I wish you hadn't done that. But then we might continue on with life as normal. So I want to hear from you. Is anyone willing to share a lament or a testimony or an exasperation or a praise of something that feels like a change? Or do you need to just say, like, man, I feel like nothing's happening? I've, uh, I'm actually genuinely serious about this. I, I want to hear from you. This is, how many of you are members of the United Methodist Church? So I'm expecting to hear from all y'all. So... Um, Um, I'm pondering whether I stay with the United Methodist Church. Uh, seems like the Judicial Council, I mean, I tried reading what they wrote. Yeah, convoluted. This week. I don't know that I understand it. It didn't seem to me it was very hopeful. Um, but I'm excited by what I see happening here. We're making lunches for kids that need them, kids that maybe have been kicked out of their homes or we don't know why. I find that exciting. We're going to be planting a garden. Um, we've got babies coming. But I don't know whether the United Methodist Church is where I want to be in another six months. Thank you for sharing that. There's a lot of honesty in that. As someone that stood in front of a, of a, of a, a board of ordained ministry and had them say that I just don't look United Methodist to them, like, I get it. Like, I find myself questioning, like, is that a good thing? Or, like, is this a place for me? Is anyone, I mean, like, I, you don't need to raise your hand, but, like, you are pondering. Is this a place for me? Is it, who, anyone else want to share? Well, I don't personally see going forward with the plan that's been adopted by the, who are they? The United Methodist the Church. United Methodist <laughs> Church. I, at some, you have to plant your flag somewhere, and um, I, I don't know. We talk about the church is not this building, but each of you are my church, and um, I would be very sad to have to dissipate. Or some of you go here, some of you go there. But um, I, I just don't see the oppressive decision made by the powers that be. And um, we either do our own thing or I don't know what. I don't have any answers except I don't want to be part of a church that has that philosophy. And I think, thank you, Marsha. I think one of the things that's at stake is that not only are are we a church to each other? I mean, I think probably a lot of you would, would resonate with the sentiment that Marcia shared, like, this isn't my church, you are my church, right? But who's, who's a church to the person out on the corner? 
Like, who's a person that is going to be church to the people who don't have us, who aren't a part of our privileged community? And I think that's one of the things that's certainly at stake, is that in building bigger, higher, stronger, more powerful walls, we may no longer be able to be the church that we need to be without breaking them down or going far beyond them. I don't know how I was tempted to throw this to you, but... Um, I went to the Pride planning meeting this week that was centered around the reconciling ministry. And there were, we started with like five chairs in the circle. I think by the end of the meeting, we had 13 or 14 people there. And they're not used to that amount of activity and participation. And one of the representatives was from a congregation that's not yet reconciling, but decided to hold their vote this week, partly because of the vote of the United Methodists. And so I guess I saw a lot of action and a lot of response in that meeting driven by the decision. So I feel like there is movement and there's a lot of people that maybe would have stood by the sidelines and now are ready to let their actions show what they believe. And, you know, I, I think the truth is that, you know, so we are a reconciling church. We've been a reconciling church since 1995. That's a specific, specific decision to change how we talk about human sexuality and gender as a way of being more inclusive in our community. But I think the truth is, especially now, that th- this is about a lot more than just sexuality and gender. This, this is about a, a, a mass of, of like a chasm between us and wanting to be able to name tensions, wanting to be able to name where we're feeling broken and where the world needs to change. So I think in, in, in the spirit of what's going on, reconciling ministries has really kind of taken on the mantle of trying to charter a new way. And there's been how many new reconciling congregations? Do you remember? Yeah, thousand, yeah. Well, I personally don't see any way that the United Methodist Church can stay united uh, with this decision. And it has affected me enough, so I'm going to the annual conference <laughs> for the first time ever. <laughs> I've been active in United Methodist, Methodist women um, for many of the years that I've been in this congregation, but not so much with the actual politi- politics of the congregation. And this issue, which I feel very strongly about inclusion and love to everyone, um, has had that effect on me. So I really believe that um, we need to find a way to separate those churches that are reconciling and affirming and truly believe that all people are welcome here from the group that does not. And that's some churches in this country and a lot of churches other places in the world. So um, I'm... Um, it's something I want to I want to work on. Yeah. Thank you, Mitzi. Uh, Becky. 
Well, I was reading um, the Seattle Times this morning in the editorial section. There was an interesting um, editorial concerning Christianity and politics. Needless to say, it was very negative um, because of the, um, the manner in which a lot of the right-wing politics has sort of claimed Christianity, but in a very exclusive manner and uh, along with struggling with how I would like to move ahead with the church and everything like that is just the fact that for many people, Christian is a dirty word. And a lot of it is, is due to the political climate. So along with the struggle in the church, I also struggle with, you know, how do I want to be viewed out in public with this really negative Christian right-wing political climate? It's very, it's very, very hard to grapple with because you've got several things coming at you at the same time. I'm going to go to Yvonne and then I'm going to come back to you, Dave. Is that cool? Uh, what I hear in, in what you said, Becky, was how am I going to be? Is that fair? Yeah. I am hopeful that uh, we can find a path forward so that we can continue to love each other as Christians. Um, I know we just got done uh, talking about Lent and the Redigan Gospel, but... Um, if we go on a path, and there's nothing has changed, but if we continue on a path that says, okay, um, it's us against them, that type of thing, then we're not loving each other. And how will we mirror God's image if we do that? So I'm hopeful that with all the conversations that we continue to talk to find a path forward in that way. So I've had thoughts about three different aspects of this. Um, as many of you know, I uh, talked about wanting to find a path forward that allowed us to stick together as a United Methodist Church. Um, four months ago, I said something to that effect. Since then, um, and after the vote, my, my feeling is we need to be able to be the church with integrity. And I'm having a hard time finding a way to be the church with integrity and, and be part of an organization that has such oppressive language. Um, and as much as I'd like to be able to, you know, be the church to other Methodists, I think it's more important to us to be the church to people outside of the existing church. And that that is the way of Christ and the way to be a church with integrity. The other piece of it is I went to a meeting a few weeks ago hoping to see leadership from our leadership that would provide a path forward and, and maybe even with the hope that it would provide guidance for us without us having to provide that leadership. And in fact, I didn't find that. And I've, I've come to the realization that we as individual churches have to find our voice 
and we have to be the leaders that then push our leaders in a direction that allows for a separation if a separation needs to occur. And, and so, you know, for me, that's, that's part of what I think we have to do is we have to find our voice, uh, you know, as the First United Methodist Church of Bellevue and, and speak out and do what we believe is right, not just for our community and ourselves, but so our leaders actually have a sense for, for where we are. And then the third part, and I don't know what to do with this, is I am totally frustrated with the bureaucracy of our church. Um, and I don't know how to fix it, but it is embarrassing how bogged down with rules and procedure we are and that we cannot find a path forward to do what we know is the right thing to do in a speedy way. And, and in addition to you know, fixing the oppressive language, I'd like to find a path forward that gets rid of all the bureaucratic junk that we have associated with our church. Because it, it's just getting in the way of us being Christians to people outside of this organization. Thanks, Dave. The question is, what does it look like to be the church? Okay. And I think both then and now, there is an essential component that we may not yet ready to, be adopt, to, to adopt. I think it's about righteous disobedience. You know, there's an important distinction in that phrase. It's not civil disobedience. There's nothing wrong with civil disobedience. The Christian, Christian tradition has helped to champion efforts in the name of civil disobedience. But the calling of Christ asks us to go deeper than that. That term righteousness, which is one that I bet many of us don't love throwing around all that often, comes from a Greek word, dikaiosune, which means God's justice. This is not just all things are made equal. It's all things are made right, corrected, healed. That's the sort of disobedience we are going for here. It's not just to take a stand. It's to mend things. The truth in the Acts of the Apostles is that if you want to be a part of the church, you might have to leave it. You might have to break it to build it back up again. You may very well have to disobey it. Let me tell you this story once more. AJ began the text like this. When they had brought them, that's how it begins. Let's go back just a little bit. Uh, starting in verse 12. It goes like this. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. We can testify to good things happening. And more than ever were, believ were believers being added to the Lord. Great numbers, both men and women. So much so that the people started carrying out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might even fall on some of them. 
a great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and all of those who were tormented so that they could be cured. Then the high priest took action. He and all who were with him, being filled with great jealousy, arrested the apostles, put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple, your place of worship, and tell the people, tell the people the whole message about this life. I wonder if that same charge rests on us today. It's just that the temple may not be this. The office for the Pacific Northwest Conference of the United Methodist Churches in Des Moines, Iowa, or Iowa, Washington. <laughs> See, you're like, I'm not going to drive to Iowa, but no. Yeah. It's 40 minutes away. Go stand in the temple. Tell them about this life. Give testimony to the good news, to the works being done among you. Speak, prophesy even more, greater things. Don't just settle for civic disobedience, which comes from even our ego often. Be a part of the reforming, the restorative work of God's righteous disobedience. So disobedient that even when Christ is killed, it doesn't refuse to obey the laws of death. Beginning again and again and again. For us, as people who have taken on that name Christian, I think as we begin this journey around what it means to be the church, we are no longer in a point when we can just be comfortable followers of Jesus. The church that we need to be a part of, or dare I say, the church that others who don't benefit from this need to be a part of, has not yet been created. And you, as someone who has taken on the name as an apostle of Christ, a follower of Christ, someone learned in the ways of Christ, are now being asked to go out even to the ends of the earth and make it happen. Are you willing to disobey in the face of inescapable religious traditions. This is not the way we do things. This would mean I'd have to give up my blank. Are you willing to give that up if it means the restorative righteousness of disobeying in the name of what God is doing and is going to continue to do? Boy, I sure hope so. I want to be a part of that. And if you call that church, amen. Sign me up.